This evening, we're going to return to our series through Genesis, looking at God's promises as they're traced through the, the life of Isaac. As I've mentioned other times in the series, this is Isaac's life that is the bookends that we're tracing here, but really the story is about his sons more than Isaac, Jacob and Esau. They, they play a much larger role. It, it began in this section of Genesis recording the, the birth of these twins, and that immediately was followed by the account of Isaac, uh, or Esau rather, transferring his birthright to Jacob. And, and from the beginning, you have this tension developing within Isaac's family. In Genesis 26, we had a little interlude in that the focus actually was on Isaac. It was not on the boys. They were not mentioned really at all in, in what we looked at in that chapter. But we saw in that chapter how God's promises passed through Isaac to the next generation. From Abraham, where they were unfulfilled fully, they now went to Isaac. God reiterated them. Uh, of course, we also saw in that chapter... It did not take Isaac long, and he caused the promises to be placed in jeopardy. And as he tried to mimic his father by passing Rebekah, his wife, off as his sister, when he went to live with the Philistines during a time of famine, God providentially stepped in, preserved the family. He protected the marriage uh, by uh, allowing Isaac to be found out. But through most of the chapter, what we saw, in, despite Isaac doing his best to jeopardize the promise, we saw the faithfulness of God. We saw that God had promised to bless Isaac, and that promise demonstrated itself over and over. Everywhere Isaac went, he found water. In, in this arid region, during the time of famine, Isaac keeps finding water. He prospered until finally the Philistine king recognized that this man is being prospered by his God, and the Philistine king established a peace treaty with Isaac. We left off our series a couple weeks ago with Isaac actively worshiping God and, and settling down once again in Beersheba. Now, I assume Isaac is still living by Beersheba when we pick things up this evening. His location is never mentioned, though. We, we don't know for sure where he's married, but it seems like that's probably where he still is. Rather, after the kind of external events of the previous weeks, once more our attention turns to Isaac's family, to the internal tension within the family. Remember, Moses is recording this selective history. He's picking pieces to record for the young nation of Israel as they're traveling around the promised land on their way from Egypt, having just escaped slavery. He wants them to recognize, it seems like, to, to see clearly the greatest danger to God's promises come from within themselves rather than from enemies without. It, it's easy to spot the enemy without and to, to recognize that as an enemy, but the internal problems often are more elusive. And that seems to be the point that Moses is bringing forth here. We must have faith in the promises. We're picking up, actually, in the very last two verses of Genesis chapter 26. These verses really function as an initial bookend on the events we're looking at tonight. We'll have these verses, and then at the very end we have another bookend that, that really encapsulate our verses. So the initial bookend on, on one side of our story tonight, let's read Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35, the, the initial bookend of Esau's wives. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, 
and Basmath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Those are just thrown in, like I said, chapter 26. We haven't heard anything about the, the, the boys. It's all been about Isaac. Until these last two verses, they probably should really be placed in the next chapter. Suddenly we have Esau mentioned. These verses will frame the entire account of what we're looking at tonight. There's four verses on the other end that will serve as another bookend. And Moses clearly places these two verses and those four for that purpose, to, 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 to bookend this account that we're looking at. He also uses these first two verses, though, to, to cast a comparative light in, on the situation that's about to unfold. The, the mention of Esau's age, that, that immediately creates a comparison between Esau and Isaac. Isaac took a wife when he was at 40, according to Genesis 25, verse 20. I doubt that you remember that, but that's one of the things we learned. Was, but Isaac took a wife at 40 by, through honoring his parents. He accepted Rebekah as, as his wife. Rebekah, if you recall, came from Abraham's extended family. She was not a local, local pagan girl. God had told them not to interact with the, the people of the region there, but to stay apart from them. Well, Isaac took his wife from Abraham's extended family. Remember, Abraham sends his servant up and, and finds Rebekah at the well and brings her back to Isaac. At 40, so this quick mention of Esau at 40 casts a, creates a contrast between his father Isaac and Esau, both getting married at, at 40. But Esau selects two wives, not just one. He selects two, and they're both from the local Hittites. Moses specifically points out that these wives brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And yet, if you look at it, Moses doesn't list any specific grievance. He doesn't say they did this and this and this. The point is not that they did special things that caused grief. Rather, the point Moses is making is that Esau's parents were troubled by the foreign ethnicity of the women, not by anything that they had done, but these are foreign wives. They are going to bring their, their pagan God understanding into the, the family. He's also, Moses says, is also probably demonstrating through the quick reference here, uh, another example of that, that shows Esau is unfit to inherit the blessing of the Abrahamic promises. Esau has a desire to, to meld in with the, the world around him. He, he doesn't have a concern for the, the wishes of his parents. He just does what he chooses. So we have this initial hint of things. And then, really, Esau's wives are set aside. Esau's actions and the local wives, they fade into the background as we move into our story. But we're to take this knowledge, this, this little glimpse of the character of Esau, now at 40, we're to take that glimpse of his character into our minds as we move into the, the reading of the next story. In, in the first four verses of chapter 27, we, we read first and foremost of Isaac's plan to, to pass along the blessing. Look at these verses. Now it came about, when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, they called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love. Bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. 
I should maybe mentioned earlier that, that none of the people involved in the events tonight display upright behavior. You know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament for examples of here's what we should be like. This is a godly person. Well, we don't see any of that tonight. Every person we see tonight serves as examples for us, but unfortunately they serve by uniformly giving us a negative example. And that begins with Isaac right here in these first verses. Now, now it seems beyond comprehension that in 40 years, Rebecca would not have told her husband what the Lord had told her back in Genesis 25, verse 23. You you may not remember that, but if you glance back at 25, 23, that's when Rebecca was pregnant, and the twins were struggling within her. She knew something unusual was going on, and the Lord told her that the older would serve the younger, that there were two nations struggling within her, but but the older would serve the younger. It's inconceivable that we're at least 40 years now, probably more. We don't know. Esau rather took a wife at 40. We know we're beyond that stage somewhere. But Isaac now is old. In that time, it seems incomprehensible. She would not have relayed that that information from the Lord on to her her husband. It it was an astounding revelation she got from God. And yet here we are, 40-plus years later, and Isaac is determined to bless his older son before he dies. Isaac, we can calculate, is at least 100 years old now because he was 60 when the twins were born, so he's at least 100 years old. He figures he doesn't have much more time left to live. Now, there's a couple things that we need to recognize as far as what's going on. One, we need to recognize that a blessing was a big deal. This was not simply saying something like, like we might say when someone sneezes and, you know, we say, bless you. This is a big deal. This is not something nonchalant. Notice the, the phrase in verse 4, so that my soul may bless you. That, that word soul is a Hebrew word that, that points to the entire being of a, a person. God breathed soul into mankind in the beginning of Genesis to, to give us life. Or he breathed life into us and we became a living soul. It's that word that, that's used here. The, the phrase is hidden in most of our English translation, but Moses actually repeats this whole phrase, that my soul may bless you. It's repeated by Moses again in verse 19 and verse 25 and verse 31, three more times. The, the point that Moses is making is that Isaac wants to bless Esau with everything he has, with his whole being. He wants to pass along really a a lifetime of blessing that he's received from God. He wants to give to Esau. Remember that the previous chapter, just before this, Moses had selected examples for us to show how God is consistently blessing Isaac. Everywhere Isaac went, every time he tried to dig a well, he found water. God was blessing him. Isaac now is a lifetime of blessing, and, and he's about to pass on to next generation. Isaac's that link in that generational chain, and he wants to hand it off to Esau. Isaac's plan is for Esau to forge the next link in the chain, even though I, I cannot imagine how God, or, or how um, Rebecca would not have told Isaac of God's statement. Second, we need to recognize the driving motivation for Isaac's plan. The, the driving motivation is his stomach. All the way back in Genesis 25, 28, before Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for some stew, we're told that Isaac favored his son Esau because Isaac had a taste for game. He liked the way the wild game tasted. Now he wants more of that game. 
His favoritism here is not based on God's purposes. Moses is pulling this out. His favoritism, Isaac's favoritism for Esau over Jacob is based on his appetites. He likes the food his older son brings. How many times have we gotten ourselves into trouble in the same way? We put the things we like ahead of sticking to what we know God has revealed. Yes, we probably don't sell our birthright for a pot of a stew, partly because we don't sell birthrights anymore, but, but so many times we let what we like determine what we're going to do rather than what God has revealed. Isaac's action here triggers a crisis in this family. Again, I expect, like many of these, this is a familiar story to us, but I hope we'll see new things tonight as, as we follow through how Isaac's actions here, this, this initial request to go get me some game so I can give you my birthright, how that triggers a, a crisis by provoking Rebecca's plan to steal the blessing. Verse, verse 5. Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Rebecca has almost an omniscient role in this story. She knows everything going on somehow. Here she's hearing what's going on. Uh, I just look at that, well, that's kind of like a mother in a normal family probably knows everything going on, but she knows what's happening. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke with his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he, he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and then I will be as a deceiver in his sight. I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as, fa as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Now really, verse 5 could have gone with either the first section or the second. It, it kind of splits things here. It's a, a swing verse. Most of our translations, though, tie it to verse 6, so I included it with this second section. Be, before we focus on Rebecca's plan, I want us to note, though, that Esau essentially breaks his oath to Jacob that uh, he made in, in chapter 25. When he sold his birthright to Jacob, he... He had agreed that, Jacob, you have this from now on. Well, now, just by going out, as his father requested him, Jacob, in essence, is going back on his oath. Like I said, none of the participants are praiseworthy in this chapter. We've seen Isaac isn't. Now Esau isn't. Surely, as we go forward here, Rebekah is not. Nor will Jacob be. Anyway, somehow, Rebecca, she overhears Esau's request. I'm sure a tense 
allow you to hear fairly well, and they're probably still dwelling in tents. Um, so she hears what Isaac wants of Esau, and she's confident that she'll be able to mimic the, the meal that Esau produces. She can take goats from the herd and mimic this dish. It makes me think there must be a lot of spice in the dish because wild game and goats probably won't taste alike otherwise, but she knows she can do it. She knows Isaac's weakness also is for food, and she knows how to exploit that weakness. She tells Jacob to, to get the things that, that she will need so that he can go and pretend to be Esau and, and trick his father into blessing him instead of Esau. So now we have mom's favoritism on full display. Dad's favoritism was on display, wanting to give Esau the, the blessing, and now mom's favoritism comes out. Moses, in fact, seems to be making a point here because in verse 5 he calls Esau his son, and then in verse 6 he calls Jacob her son. This is not a happy home being depicted here. I'm sure you noticed that, that Jacob was hesitant to participate in the deception, but observe his hesitancy was not based on moral grounds. Rather, his hesitancy was strictly pragmatic. He's afraid that he'll be found out trying to deceive his father. Clearly, he realizes doing what he's about to do is curse-worthy rather than blame-worthy. So there's no confusion on Jacob's part. There, there's no misunderstanding. He knows this is wrong to do. It's worth a curse if he's caught. Rebecca unequivocally uh, says that, that, that she will ensure the blessing goes to Jacob. She wants to ensure that, and, and she'll even take the curse on herself if, if necessary. Now, it's possible, as many have suggested, that she may rationalize her actions by, by thinking that having Jacob receive the blessing, that, that's in line with God's promises. After all, she's just protecting her husband from making a big mistake here. Maybe she rationalizes it that way, but there's nothing praiseworthy about how she goes about obtaining the blessing for Jacob. Tricking her husband, creating deception is not praiseworthy. She agrees with her son that a curse would be deserved if they're caught. She just says, I'll take the curse. I'll accept it. And then continues to pressure Jacob to go on with the deception. Good motherly influence here. Son, deceive your father. She provides answers to all the concerns they raises regarding how the deception might fail. Here's what you can do. I know how to trick my husband. Which brings us to verse 18. Jacob's efforts to steal the blessing. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. 
and he brought it to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please, come close and kiss me, my son. So I came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of the heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Well, Rebecca, or Jacob succeeds, I guess by extension. Rebecca su- succeeds. Rebecca knows her husband well. She, she knows what steps he might take. And all of the concerns that Jacob raised, they were valid. But Rebecca's ideas worked. She knew how she could deceive her husband. Because Jacob couldn't see, he relied on his other senses. So Jacob used Isaac's sense of taste, his sense of touch, his sense of smell. He used that to overcome his sense of hearing. Even, even though Jacob didn't sound like Esau, Isaac accepted that he was Esau because he smelled and, and tasted, the, the dish tasted right and the touch was right. Of course, in order to accomplish this, Jacob had to outright lie. He boldly claimed several times that he was Esau, flat out lied. But more significantly, Jacob also blasphemed God. He drew the Lord into it, blaspheming the Lord by, by drawing him into this deception, claiming that God was the one that had allowed the hunt to go quickly. The implication in that statement is that God has demonstrated his divine approval on Isaac giving the blessing at this time. I wonder how often we might act in a similar fashion. We pretend to have the Lord's blessing on us when there's no way that can be the case. We, we live disobediently. We, know, we do things that we know are contrary to God's word, but because God doesn't immediately drop the consequences of our actions on us and, and things go okay, we, we act like he's blessing us. We fool ourselves to, well, God must be blessing me after all. When we read things here, we can see the foolishness of what Jacob is doing. Can we see the foolishness in our own lives when we do similar things? Jacob does, in the final verses we just read, eventually receive the blessing. Of course, God had promised before they were ever born that the blessing would flow through Jacob. There was never any doubt whether Jacob would get the blessing or not. In Genesis 25, 23, God had told Rebekah that the older twin would serve the younger. Significantly, that idea is repeated in, in verse 29 in this chapter, in the statements that Jacob will lord over his brethren and over nations. Moses creates a link for us with the phrase, may your mother's sons bow down to you, in that we see a similar phrase in Genesis 49, 8, when Joseph receives the blessing. There your father's son shall bow down to you. The, the phrase being repeated in 49 to that prophecy that Joseph is given, or actually go, uh, Jacob gives it to the house of Judah, not Joseph. It's, if it, it makes it sound like Isaac hears this crucial link that the blessings will come through the seed of Abraham, and it shows us that it goes from Abraham to Isaac to, ja- to, to Jacob, and then the kingship will rest with Judah. The link is being formed, and Moses uses these catchphrases 
as the blessings are passed. The blessing also wraps up with a statement of protection for Jacob. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. That repeats what Abraham was told in Genesis 12:3 when God first promised Abraham that he would be called out from the nations and blessed in a unique way. What Moses has shown us clearly here is that despite the deception, Jacob has inherited the promises of God. God had said before he was born, before Jacob ever do, did anything, as Paul makes clear for us, it's before Jacob or Esau did anything that God elected Jacob, God had chosen to pass the promises to Jacob. The deception hasn't negated that. Despite that, Jacob inherits the promises. And it's through these catchphrases, it's clearly communicated, the promises flow, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. Well, now the deed is done. Jacob has received the, the blessing rather than, than Isaac, or Esau, rather. He stole it from Isaac. The deed is done, but the family crisis is not over. Immediately, we read now of Esau's efforts to acquire the blessing. Picking up in verse 30. Now it came about, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it in to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac his father said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently, and he said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you, then what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. When I read this section specifically of this chapter, I, I can't help but think about these high school-style plays that the high school plays inevitably have these near misses as a part of their, their motivation in their scenes. You know, something's developing on stage, and if only this other person knew about it, everything would fall in place. But they don't because the people just leave right before they enter the scene. Well, that's what's going on here. Esau comes just before, or just after Isaac leaves. He just misses in the high school plays, usually it's these near misses that, that cause the humor. Well, there's nothing humorous going on here. It, it seems as if Jacob barely leaves Isaac's tent when Esau returns. 
Esau comes back from his hunt. He rapidly prepares food for his father, and he brings it to him. And in fact, if we look at Esau's initial words to Isaac in verse 31, and if we compare them to Jacob's word of entry in verses 18 and 19, we, we see Esau actually approaches his father in a much more formal and respectful manner. It, it's as if Esau realizes that to receive a blessing from his father is a solemn event, and, and he goes in with great respect. Of course, he, he rapidly discovers that Isaac's already been given the, the blessing to another. He's missed it. We also can see from this that Isaac intended to give all his blessing to one son. We also can't help but wonder if Isaac retained some suspicion in the back of his mind the, the whole time that, that Jacob was not Esau. Because he doesn't ask Esau near the amount of questions he asks Isaac. And in verse 35, he immediately states that it was your brother Jacob who came and deceitfully took the blessing. There's no doubt in Isaac's mind who it was now that Esau has arrived. The other thing that's equally clear is that the blessing was special. Once given, it, it could not be revoked. It, once given, it could not be altered. Isaac recognizes that the words, that, that a blessing that he gave to Jacob, those words are permanent and binding. All Isaac can do is tremble violently over what happened. You, you may wonder if Isaac immediately realizes that despite his plan, he ended up inadvertently fulfilling God's word by giving the blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. The only one more distressed in, in these verses than Isaac is Esau. It's not too hard to imagine where it says he cried an exceedingly great and bitter cry. It's not too hard to imagine that cry of anguish. Esau has traded both his birthright and his blessing to his brother earlier. Even though now he claims that Jacob took them, Esau had given them away. Chapter 25 only mentions the birthright, but the inspired author of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, he ties the two together. The birthright and the blessing, they go together. They're one and the same. And Esau traded those to Jacob, yet he laments his loss now. He, he knows at this point he's been supplanted completely by his brother. He even uses a wordplay to, to make this link. He, in verse 36, there's a link between the name Jesus, Jacob and the, the, the verb they uses when he says supplanted. They're, they're similar Hebrew words. Esau begs his father for a blessing. And ultimately, Jacob concedes to give Esau a blessing, but in reality, if you look at Esau's blessing, it turns out to be nothing more than a reiteration of, that, of the fact that the real blessing goes to Jacob. Esau's descendants will have a subservient role to Jacob's descendants. Now we might think that the reception of the blessing, or, or maybe we should call it this anti-blessing that Esau gets, um, that this would wrap up the, the current family crisis. Things are done. But things are never resolved that easily. Especially when we let sin be the, the main manipulative factors. Things do not resolve so easily. Let's read on to see how Rebekah plans now to secure the blessing in verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both you of you both in one day. Now, you may recall that there was a hint that Jacob had schemed to get Esau to sell him the birthright in chapter 25. I mentioned that at the time that the wording seems to suggest that Jacob had planned in advance that an opportunity would come and he'd reach for the birthright. Well, now he's received the blessing from Isaac as well. And so Jacob's gotten everything that he's wanted, but he's done it at a cost of incurring his brother's wrath. Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. That, that word grudge, that's the same word that's used to describe what Joseph's brothers feared Joseph might do to them after their father Jacob dies. If you remember in Genesis 50, verse 15, they asked themselves, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? I mean, after all, they did sell him in slavery, right? He, he ended up going to Egypt, and life was hard for Joseph. What if he bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did him? That's the word we have here, this grudge. It's a deep-seated anger, an anger that, that results in violent retaliation. Esau is so angry, he wants to kill his brother Jacob. He just plans to wait till his father dies, and then he will take action. Somehow, once again, Rebecca knows what's going on. She has this near omniscience knowledge of what's happening in the family, and she immediately launches another plan, this one to secure the blessing by preserving Jacob's life. She tells Jacob to flee to her family far to the north there in Padam Aram and, and stay with her brother Laban, uh, notice, a few days. That reference to a few days in verse 44 is somewhat ironic. Jacob will end up staying with, with Laban for 20 years, and, and Rebekah never does see him again. We've heard her plan, but, but again, her plan needs execution. This time it's Rebekah who pro approaches her husband rather than Isaac. And, and in verse 46 of, of chapter 27 through verse 5 of the next chapter, we have Isaac providing to preserve the blessing, even though he doesn't really know that's what he's doing so much. Look at verse 46. Rebekah says to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brothers, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan, Paddan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Remember Esau's Hittite wives. That's the initial bookend for the story. 
Now, Rebekah doesn't reveal to Isaac that Esau wants to kill his brother. Remember, after all, Esau is Isaac's favorite. Likely, Isaac wouldn't believe such a, a vicious charge could be true. So, Rebekah instead focuses on Jacob's need to find a good wife, probably suggesting her brother, although it comes out as, as Isaac's idea in the next chapter, so a smart wife somehow makes it so that the husband comes to the idea she wants. So while it's more subtle, it's still deception. It's more subtle than the first deception, but again, Rebecca's deceiving Jacob, in, or I mean Isaac, into getting what she wants. Jacob agrees with the plan. After all, he too was grieved by Esau's wives. We were told that at the beginning. So he calls Jacob to him and, and sends him north to Paddan Aram to look for a wife. Isaac even imparts an urgency through the double imperative there in verse 2. Arise, go. This is important. What is most significant, really, in, in this final episode of the sad story we've been looking at tonight is verses 3 and 4. Isaac knows by this point, that Jacob has deceived him to receive the blessing. Yet here as Jacob is sending, or as Isaac is sending Jacob away, Isaac confirms the blessing of his father Abraham and even invokes God Almighty. He's fully aware he's blessing Jacob, not Esau at this point. As, as one commentator stated, we see at the end here that Isaac has affirmed that the promises of Abraham and the promises of Isaac are now the promises of Jacob. They have passed to the next generation. That concludes the, the deceptive episode, except that we still need this final bookend to, to pair up with the initial bookend. Remember with the initial bookend of Esau's wives? Well, in verses 6 through 9, we, we get the final bookend. The final bookend of Esau's wives. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married besides the wives. They had Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. So he watched, Esau watched Isaac bless Jacob, and he watched Isaac send Jacob away to find a wife from the, the extended family. And apparently he finally realizes how ill-advised it was for him to marry his Hittite wives. Esau married them without concern for what his parents thought, and now he, he realizes it was ill-advised. He specifically is concerned that his father, Isaac, displeased. It doesn't seem like he cares about what his mother thought. It's not mentioned at all. But Esau's solution when he sees that his father was unhappy with his actions is once again to come up with a plan of his own. He attempts to imitate Jacob somewhat by taking a wife tied to the family line. He goes to Ishmael and he takes a third wife. What we can observe is that now the, the older son of Abraham if you will, and the older son of Isaac, these two older sons, they're now united. They're united in marriage. They're also united in not receiving the blessing. Ishmael did not receive the blessing. Isaac did. Esau did not receive the blessing. Jacob did. As one commentator expressed it, the, the rejected son Esau 
seals his state by marrying into the family of the discarded son, Ishmael. Before we wrap up, let's again ask ourselves, now as we think about this, we've seen the initial book in, the final book and everything in between, let's ask ourselves, what can we learn? It's really been a sad story when you get down to it. Deception after deception, sinful actions. What can we learn? What is the overall lesson? There's not a positive example anywhere in this story, but that does not mean that, that we cannot learn a positive lesson. Moses recorded this for the people of Israel. God preserved it for us because there is a positive lesson for us. The, the way I would express the, the overall lessons that, that we should learn tonight is that sinful actions to accomplish God's purposes inevitably bring complications into our lives. Inevitably. We will not simplify our lives doing sinful things, ever. It cannot happen. Sinful actions to accomplish God's purposes inevitably bring complications into our lives. That's really what we learned from all the examples tonight, all the actions that were taken by the different players in, in this story. Every person behaved sinfully. Their actions were unable to thwart the will of God. God's will was expressed before the, the, the boys were ever born. God had promised his blessing would flow through Jacob, and that's what happened. Efforts to the contrary could not change God's decreed purpose. But they sure brought complications. We can speculate, certainly, how God might have brought about his plan if, if one or more of the people had acted in a righteous manner instead of an unrighteous manner. You know, just if one of them Certainly, God would have still accomplished his, greed, his decreed purpose somehow, but we can assume that the complications would not have been so dire. Yet speculation is not necessary to see what occurred when all the people acted unrighteously. We can just read the story. Complications flowed everywhere. The brothers became estranged. Jacob ends up living outside the promised land for 20 years. Rebecca never sees her favorite son again. Isaac has to live his final years leading a broken home and so on. It's just one complication after another. We, we see all that happening in the story, but we can learn from it. As I indicated before, how often do we find ourselves taking matters into your own hands rather than trusting God to, to work things according to his purposes. I know time after time I found myself sinning in a similar manner. I, I'll tell a lie, for example. I, I act deceitfully, all because I fool myself into thinking that by doing that, somehow it will be the lesser evil. I'll save an embarrassment for someone else, or I'll more likely save embarrassment for me or something. I fool myself in thinking that, that I can cause some sort of good to happen through sinful actions. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone doing that. Time after time, I've watched others do the same thing. Do sinful things trying to accomplish what we believe is a good purpose of God. Sinful actions to accomplish God's purposes inevitably bring complications into our lives. We can never accomplish God's purposes through sinful actions. Never. Nor does God need us to, to twist things and manipulate things to accomplish his plan. All unrighteous behavior does is, is bring complications along. 
We, we just need to get that lesson through our head so that, that we'll pursue righteousness in, in every situation. Pursue what is right. That's the reason God gives these negative examples, as, like the one we've seen tonight, so we can see all the misery and the complications that come from pursuing unrighteousness. Sinful actions to accomplish God's purposes inevitably bring complications into our lives. Let's learn that truth. Father, I thank you for this time in your word again tonight. Even as it's been an unsavory story, we know there is much for us to learn there. We thank you first and foremost for being a sovereign God that accomplishes your plan regardless of what humans do, regardless of the failures of, of humans. Nothing impedes your plan. We also thank you that you're a good God that you do not allow unrighteousness to go without consequence. I pray that you would help us all to learn that truth tonight so that we will pursue righteousness in the circumstances of our lives, the situations and the trials and the tests that come before us. May we seek to serve you and live obedient to all that you have decreed in your word for how we should live. May we joyfully magnify Christ through our lives, through our actions. We pray this in his name. Amen.